Hello and welcome to the penultimate episode of I Love This Band Presents Nirvana, part five, Magnet Tar Pit Trap. This is part five of six episodes, okay? So the first four episodes are up, so if you haven't heard those yet, please go back and listen to those in order to get the best experience. As I've mentioned, this episode is entitled Magnet Tar Pit Trap. The title comes from a lyric in Nirvana's song Heartship Box off In Utero. And that's an indication that yes, we are now in the In Utero era. There's a lot to cover in this podcast. It's Sunday evening, Easter Sunday specifically, when I'm recording this now, this little introduction. And of course, my social media is flooded now with stuff about Coachella. So quite fittingly, I get to talk about the Reading Festival. On this episode, of course, it's an iconic festival appearance by Nirvana in England um, in 1992. So I really hope you enjoy hearing about that. I actually had a lot of fun covering that part of the story. Here's how out of the loop I am. I believe the Grammys happened or they are happening. So it kind of is an award season too. And I get to talk about Nirvana at the VMAs. And of course, the infamous feud with Axl Rose and how it came to a head during this time. That was also really fun to cover. This is actually a very fun episode. Of course, there are some sad parts too. So without further delay, I'll get my usual things out of the way. Uh, Firstly, the social media. I'm available on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. I'm available on Facebook and Instagram at I Love This Band Pod and on Twitter at love this band pod if you just drop the i secondly of course i do have my patreon live there are two tiers there if you would like to support me and my work and that's patreon.com forward slash i love this band pod and the next bit of course is crediting my sources i used three books as sources and references for this podcast first Heavier Than Heaven by Charles R. Cross. Come As You Are, The Story of Nirvana by Michael Azarad. And Nirvana, The True Story by Everett True. I also referenced some articles and cited the authors throughout the podcast. Of course, my own opinions are spread throughout the podcast and it's largely in my own words, apart from anything that's quoted um in saying that a lot of the stuff that you're going to hear i would on the safe side consider it alleged of course these are three brilliant journalists and writers uh, that wrote those books um especially michael azarad and ever true actually had relationships with kirk cobain they knew him um so i consider those very reliable i would consider charles r cross's book quite reliable too uh of course I can't speculate everything about Kurt Cobain's life because I wasn't there. Um, You know, the people who were around him at the time, his very close family and friends are the only ones that really know the true story. So in saying that, I would consider everything alleged. Of course, it's very possible too. Some of the things I'm talking about here might be slightly inaccurate or something. Uh, Obviously, that's just because I am using secondhand sources. Um, So I just need to point that out. Nothing here is meant to disparage anybody living or dead. 
or to make anybody look bad um certainly not um this is a celebration of Kurt Cobain and Nirvana and I wrote it with the utmost respect for the people and the living people still affected by this story so I can't be held responsible if you think some of the things I'm saying are biased or something you know I would say it's my podcast and this is intended for entertainment purposes only there's been a lot of talk about crediting your sources in the podcast world and I believe now if you don't do that especially if you're doing a long series like this um, you're doing yourself a disservice you make yourself look like a bit of a hack and also it's very disrespectful to the people who actually put in years of work to collect all this information all I'm doing is arranging it in a certain way I'm telling a story in my own words um, and using these books in order to help me you know get the facts and, and put it all out there but of course I just need to stress that it is very important to me that my podcast has some integrity and I do credit the sources that I use so it might even be a little annoying throughout the podcast uh, but it was very important for me to do that another thing too one more thing actually there is a content warning on this podcast because there are references to suicide suicidal ideation and drug addiction of these if these are topics that you're not in a headspace to listen to right now um and i totally understand that and if there's a podcast in my catalog maybe from a couple of years ago uh, that's a little bit more lighthearted, um go back and listen to that or come back to me at a later date when you're in a better headspace because i don't want to be getting anyone down it's really not what i intended to do here uh, so that's just actually for your well-being. So please come back again if that's not something you want to hear today. And right, you know, I'm going to shut the fuck up now. Uh, here it is. I Love This Band Presents Nirvana. Part 5. Magnet Tar Pit Trap. On August 18, 1992, Courtney gave birth to their daughter, Frances Bean Cobain. Frances was born seven pounds and one ounce. There was no cause for concern. Frances was healthy and her father, albeit frail and sick, held her as she entered the world. The September issue of Vanity Fair hit the newsstands that week and things were only going to go downhill from here. On the Vanity Fair article, Courtney remarked, I read the facts of it and my bones shook. I knew my world was over. I was dead. That was it. The rest of my life. Not only was I going to walk around with a big black mark, but any happiness that I had known, I was going to have to fight for, for the rest of my life. She felt a sense of shame, humiliation and anxiety. The article wasn't the least bit flattering to both Courtney and Kurt. The most contentious part of the article, of course, 
was the heroin use during pregnancy. The article was entitled Strange Love, the story of Courtney Love and Kurt Cobain and was written by Lynn Hirschberg. One quote goes, Courtney is now regarded as a train wreck personality. She may be awful, but you can't take your eyes off her. This particular line in the article pretty much sums up the media spectacles I've spoken about before. The same attitude that befell Amy Winehouse, Britney Spears and Whitney Houston. It comes from a media that thrives on taking these women down a peg and to revel in their downfall. Humiliation sold magazines and it still gains clicks. It's only when tragedy strikes the tone changes. Another anonymous source is quoted as saying, It was horrible, calls a business associate who was travelling with them at the time. Courtney was pregnant and she was shooting up. Kurt was throwing up on people in the cab. They were both out of it. Both Kurt and Courtney were devastated. Not to mention now extremely anxious and paranoid. Hirschberg's article, which I have read again to prepare for this episode, is heavily reliant on close friends and associates, mostly unnamed sources. The worst part, however, was that a social worker from the Los Angeles County Department of Children's Services appeared at the hospital with a copy of Vanity Fair. The article was beyond a glossy, salacious interview with a rock star. The words written in Vanity Fair were not reported out of concern for a child and they had very serious real-life consequences for the Cobain family. Frances would not be left with her parents and was kept at the hospital. They would not be allowed to be with their child without a court-appointed guardian. They were beyond devastated. After many legal negotiations, it was decided Frances would remain under the custody of family members and hired nannies. Courtney's estranged sister, Jamie Rodriguez, was flown in to satisfy the courts. At this stage, Jamie and Courtney barely knew each other. Jackie Farry, a friend of Gold Mountain Management, would also take responsibility for Frances's parenting. All carers moved to the Oakwood apartment complex where Kurt lived during the making of Nevermind and Courtney and Kurt returned home without their new daughter. This height of fame, coupled with Kurt's health problems, had contributed to a media frenzy. Gossip upon gossip column was peddled by both the general media and the music media. There was endless talk and speculation, not only about the personal lives of the Cobains, but the future of Nirvana. The English music press blamed Kurt's heroin addiction for the alleged downfall of the band. Well, Kurt was sick, tired and traumatised by recent events. 
He was also furious at any suggestion that he was a helpless junkie who was throwing his career away and he was just waiting for death. While Kurt had threatened suicide and his mental state during this time was understandably not good. He wanted to be a father to Francis. He loved his family. His baby was wanted and he was in love with Courtney. He had plenty to live for. There was just so much noise. Even Courtney, whose public persona was of this brash, loud-mouthed rock star who was seemingly bulletproof to criticism, was in an extremely vulnerable state. She was weaning off drugs, hormonal and heartbroken. She stayed at home to recover and then Nirvana left to perform at the Reading Festival in England. Kurt had even had a hand in deciding the festival's lineup. L7, Screaming Trees, Melvins, and even the famous ABBA tribute band, Bjorn Again, would share the stage. The crowd was 60,000, and it was highly anticipated for many reasons. As another piece of revenge to England, Kurt included no English bands to play. The only band from the United Kingdom was Teenage Fan Club from Scotland. Rumours persisted that this was Nirvana's last show, although it would be their last UK show. And the Kurt may not show up at all due to the hammering he and Courtney had received from the British media. This is also, of course, not to mention the speculations about Kurt's frail state. A rumour even flew around that Kurt was in fact dead. Due to all of this, of course, it added a different kind of tension in the air as the opening bands played. It was a hot August night. Steam from body heat rose from the crowd. Shortly before Nirvana, Nick Cave had taken the stage and played the weeping song and Diana. His performance and song choices seemed a little out of place. Cave, in his younger years, was also a rock and roll madman. By the 90s, he'd become more polished, more adult in his sound. Gone were the years of beating goth girls away from him with a cane. To some people's surprise, and I'm guessing a lot of people's relief, Kurt and the boys, of course, did appear. Kurt was pushed on stage in a wheelchair by Everett True and then accompanied by Chris Novoselic. He was wearing a white doctor's jacket and a big blonde white wig. Ever the showman, Chris gives Kurt some words of encouragement. You're going to make it, man. With the support of his family and friends, you guy are going to make it. Kurt then sang the opening lines to Bette Midler's The Rose before pretending to collapse. Some say love, it is a river. He was then passed a guitar and the band ripped into Breed, never mind. 
to many watching on, it was a satisfying F.U. to naysayers and a triumphant return to English soil. The band played 25 songs. Kurt dedicated all apologies to Courtney and Francis. And during a break, encouraged the crowd to chant, Courtney, we love you. Other notable songs from the set were The Money Will Roll Right In, a cover of a song by the band Fang, and a cover of the Wiper song D7. Their male go-go dancer, Tony Hodginson, joined them for 12 songs. Nirvana also previewed two other songs, which would appear on In Utero. Those were Tourette's and Dumb. The band ended the set with the Star Spangled Banner. And I can only speculate if this was another dig at Her Majesty's soil. They of course smashed their instruments, so as not to disappoint. This festival appearance is now considered kind of iconic. It's a source of some of Nirvana's best recorded live appearances. And it's available song by song on YouTube. In, on the off chance that you haven't seen it, but I'm sure you have. From September 2nd, when Kurt returned to Los Angeles to the 8th, he was a patient at Exodus, a rehab facility in Marina del Rey. For all intents and purposes, Kurt wasn't out of the woods in terms of his addiction. He was also exhausted and emotionally overwhelmed. By 25, Kurt was grappling with a dangerous drug addiction. He'd achieved success that most could not achieve in their wildest dreams. He also now had his own family and that wasn't going well for him. His beloved baby daughter had been taken away and his wife had her own demons to face. He was experiencing a kind of deep shame due to his addiction and I'm sure that got him very down as well. He wrote a lot during this time, mainly musings about what he felt punk rock was and what kind of reads like him making sense of how he got into heroin in the first place. It may have been a mix of lots of things. It may have been self-medicating for a physical illness. It may have been social pressure due to the drug being rampant in the rock scene. And it may have been his own sense of either feeling invincible or not caring if it killed him or not. One thing is apparent. He wanted to live for Francis. His priorities had changed by now. His outlook was different. In one piece, he writes, I wish there was someone I could ask for advice. Someone who wouldn't make me feel like a creep for spilling my guts and trying to explain all the insecurities that have plagued me for, oh, about 25 years now. I wish someone could explain to me why. Why exactly I have no more desire to learn anymore. It reads like it's from the perspective of someone who wants to change and really doesn't know how. I think this is probably the most tragic thing of all. He wanted to be understood, he wanted a roadmap, he wanted practical solutions. He didn't want pity, smothering or endless self-analysis. I think that's probably one of the saddest quotes I've read on the podcast so far. It really sounds desperate and it really makes you feel for him. On the 8th of September, 
Kurt was given day leave to rehearse for the MTV Video Music Awards. These days, no one really cares about the VMAs. In fact, recently, I did take it upon myself to watch the EMAs on now. And to say I was unimpressed was an understatement. While the pandemic was, of course, a factor, I I wrote this piece actually before the restrictions were lifted, these award shows have lost their sense of chaos and spectacle, the kind of spectacle they used to have, in my memory anyway. Contemporary pop singers are well-versed in public relations and maintaining a public image. Everyone is at their best behaviour. Of course, I do see the humour in me reading this now, after the Will Smith fiasco at the Oscars. I'm not going to go into that, nor am I going to give my opinion on it either. Any other shenanigans usually at these awards feel nothing but contrived and embarrassing. In 1992, however, some bands valued the MTV Awards more than accolades such as the Grammys, which still receive a lot of traction on social media and in the traditional press. Also, disclaimer, I'm not the grunge generation. In fact, I was born in the middle of the ascent of all these bands. Sadly, I missed out and I'm still bitter about it. (laughs) But anyway, I'm the Britney, Madonna, Extina VMA generation. At least these spectacles gave you at least something to talk about. The same can be said for the next part in this Nirvana story. Kurt, of course, didn't rate MTV publicly. It was, of course, part of the music industry establishment. Our general opinion now is that for better or for worse, the early 90s were a bit of a golden era for the music video itself as an art form. Here's at least two music videos that came out in 1992. Under the Bridge by the Red Hot Chili Peppers and November Rain by Guns N' Roses. Other honourable mentions include My Lovin' by En Vogue and Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You. To be clear, we are talking about modern icons. Videos that came out around this time are circulated to this day. Every age group can visualise these songs in their minds. And Kurt's relationship with MTV is quite interesting. Kurt, of course, took note of how many times Nirvana's videos were played. He publicly complained and privately called management to say they weren't played enough. As I've mentioned in early parts of this story, Kurt really cared. He really cared. He was careful enough as a means of preserving Nirvana's band persona to only give a shit in private. Of course, in rehearsals, Kurt wanted to play Rape Me, and they did. MTV were outraged. During the actual show, he teased by playing the opening strums. They then played Lithium. There was also some nice organised stage diving arranged by MTV. It was a fantastic performance. At the end of the performance, Chris concussed himself with his bass and Kurt dove into the drum kit. Dave Grohl grabbed the mic and frantically shouted, Hi Axel, where's Axel? Hi Axel! 
And here's the fun bit, okay? Of course, this was at the end of a bitter feud that had been brewing over a period of time. Nirvana had been invited to play Axl Rose's 30th birthday party. I had even been invited to go on tour with them as an opening act. Of course, since Guns N' Roses pretty much represented everything Kurt detested about mainstream rock and roll, from the bloated performances to the racist and sexist lyrics, these invitations were not politely declined. In a Florida performance, Axl Rose told the crowd that Kurt was a fucking junkie with a junkie wife. If the baby's deformed, I think they both ought to go to prison. Nirvana and the extended family, of course, continued to goad him after this. Backstage, Kurt and Courtney bumped into Axl Rose and his girlfriend at the time, Stephanie Seymour. Kurt was holding Francis in his arms. Courtney continued to then tease Axel. Hey Axel, will you be the godfather of our child? To which Axel replied, albeit to Kurt, You should shut your bitch up or I'm going to knock you to the pavement. Kurt told Courtney in a deadpan voice to, Shut up bitch. Then Stephanie asked Courtney, Are you a model? And Courtney replies scathingly, No, are you a brain surgeon? The other couple fled the scene with their tails between their legs. I certainly would not challenge Courtney or Kurt in a battle of the wits. And of course, there is an audio clip of Kurt retelling this story. Maybe that's where this transcript comes from. Um, I'm not sure if the video exists. I really wish it did. Uh, I think I've only heard audio of it, but it's pretty funny. Of course, this exchange is stuff of legend. Nirvana danced with the stars, quite literally. If you count Kurt and Eddie Vedder slow dancing to Tears in Heaven by Eric Clapton, a gesture that seemingly signified the end of their separate and unrelated feud. Nirvana won Best Alternative Music Video, which was accepted by a Michael Jackson impersonator. After the MTV Awards, Kurt was interviewed by Robert Hilburn of the LA Times. This interview was different to the previous. Charles R. Cross notes that this is one of the first times Kurt doesn't minimise or dismiss how serious his drug use had become and how disruptive it had become in terms of his life and his professional life. Kurt may have somewhat been egged on by any journalism that had suggested Nirvana had ended. It may have provided some kind of motivation for him. He talked about recording a really raw album. As previously noted in this story, Nirvana had embarked on exhaustingly long and sometimes disorganised tours. While they were successful and they led to album sales and acclaim, they also led to physical and mental exhaustion. Being a rock star was now only one job Kurt had. He was also a father. His journal entries provide evidence he was self-aware and knew where he stood in the world at this time. And he knew musically and personally where he wanted to be. In October 1992, Nirvana played in front of a staggering 50,000 fans in Jose Amalfitani Stadium in Buenos Aires. 
Charles R. Cross doesn't go into detail about this, and that was unfortunate. But I found an article about this show written by Joe Taysom for Far Out magazine. This show is notorious in Nirvana lore for a very Kurt Cobain-esque reason. Kurt had handpicked Portland, Oregon band Calamity Jane to open the show. Calamity Jane were an all-female grunge band with heavy riffs, wailing vocals and brilliant slow-fast dynamics. I listened to their album while writing this and they are pretty great. They are for fans of say Hole and Babes in Toyland. The music is great, the vocals are great and the energy and attitude is great. Well, the crowd didn't go for Calamity Jane and they were booed off stage. This made Kurt furious. Kurt was still a punk rock boy from Aberdeen and he was still a friend of the Riot Girl movement. One thing that really enraged him were the aggressive displays of sexism and bullying. He decided to seek revenge for Calamity Jane and get his own back on the crowd. His own crowd. Nirvana opened the show with an improvised jam, then aneurysm, sang by Dave Grohl, not Kurt. Then Nirvana teased the crowd with the intro to Smells Like Teen Spirit before going into Breed instead. They did the same before Drain You, before going into Beeswax and Spank Through. The band ended the show with an encore of all apologies and endless nameless. Now, just to put this into perspective, since we're all so cool now, Incesticide, which would be the compilation of rarities, that was not released until December of 92. So it was possible the crowd didn't know these songs as well. It's my understanding that the crowd's perception of Nirvana at this time would have been similar to their perception of every other heavy rock band that was popular at the time. Calamity Jane were at best misunderstood and at worst easy targets for sexist heavy metal bros. During the end of 1992, Kurt was collecting things to inspire him. He was reading Perfume, the story of a murderer by Patrick Suskind and the works of feminist iconoclast Camille Paglia. He continued to paint. During this time, Kurt and Courtney also got to spend far more time with their daughter, Frances Bean. Kurt's lyrics were also about to become that bit more confessional. Although most of them would still be bizarre, abstract and open to interpretation, his lyrics reflected being in his mid-twenties and about to hit his late twenties. His lyrics were still sad and sarcastic, but they had a sense of humour. Serve the Servants demonstrated this. Teenage angst has paid off well, now I'm bored and old. As mentioned in an earlier part of the story, he took inspiration from his own life story, his own family and his own experiences. He just hid them really well. He threw digs at journalists, judgmental family members and of course himself. He poked fun at his own persona, the sad messiah of Generation X. On January 16th, 1993, Nirvana played a massive concert in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Kurt was not at his physical best during the show. He was withdrawing and had taken some Valium and drank some vodka. 
the crowd was that of 110,000 people. The show went on, but Kurt was still physically vulnerable during this time. I guess it just became another day at work. According to Charles Cross, these massive concerts and their massive paychecks were taken to cover an array of expenses Kurt had accumulated. Doctors, rehab, lawyers, taxes, and a nice house in Carnation, 30 miles outside Seattle. Kurt was making a lot of money, but spending quite a lot of it too. In Rio, Nirvana covered We Will Rock You, Seasons in the Sun, and Duran Duran's Rio. Equipment was smashed, fruit was pelted, and the band didn't play their contracted 45 minutes. They put this down as one of their worst shows, but I'm sure the crowd still loved it. According to Heavier Than Heaven, Kurt was feeling the pressure and this had taken its toll on his mental health. Krist Novoselic described the disastrous Rio show as a mental breakdown. Kurt was emotionally volatile, depressed and maybe a little suicidal too. The anxiety had built up and came to a head when he threatened to jump off a balcony after a fight with Courtney. It was also during this time, after a collaboration back and forth with Courtney, that Kurt wrote the first version of one of Nirvana's most disturbingly beautiful songs. A love song, a twisted love song, called Heart Shaped Box. It was about him, and it was about them, and their twisted kind of love, but love nonetheless. Scentless Apprentice was inspired by the brilliant novel Perfume, a book Kurt had become enamoured by. Both Hardship Box and Scentless Apprentice debuted at the second concert in Rio on January 23rd, 1993. After a quick period of hard work and creative flow, despite his waves of melancholia, Kurt was now feeling positive about Nirvana's next album. And now we've reached the part you've been waiting for, in utero. Charles R. Cross writes in Heavier Than Heaven, with Kurt's lyrics improved greatly around this time. He credits Kurt's relationship with Courtney for this impact on his songwriting. The influence of Courtney on Kurt is not often discussed in Nirvana lore, In doing so, I'm acutely aware of how controversial this claim may be. This is mainly since Courtney herself is such a divisive figure among Nirvana fans and historians alike. In terms of being an influence on Kurt's words and being familiar with the lyrical works of both artists as individuals, I'd say there's plenty of weight in that theory and that Courtney also influenced Kurt as much as he had influenced her. Courtney's lyrics had more of a structure and a narrative, whereas Kurt's were more beat, more abstract. I'd even cite beat writers as having an influence on Kurt as a writer. In high school, Kurt read the works of William S. Burroughs, authors of the books Naked Lunch and Junkie. Burroughs, of course, was one of the founding members of the Beat literary movement of the 1950s. 
The movement also involved the likes of Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac. Cross even mentions in one excerpt of Heavier Than Heaven that Kurt's journal entries were Kerouac-esque. The beat style is non-linear and identifiable for its stream of consciousness style. Burroughs led a rich and colourful life. He also collaborated with plenty of counterculture figures and alternative rock musicians. His work was heavily inspired by his interest in the occult and mind-altering substances. He was famous for what he called his cut-up technique, where written text is cut up and rearranged to create a new text. It's easy to see how Kurt, knowing his inclinations, would be intoxicated by the works of Burroughs and its darkness. I feel this influence is also found in Kurt's writing style. Kurt collaborated with William S. Burroughs in 1993 on a spoken word record called The Priest They Called Him. The record sounds like it could have appeared on Kurt's teenage Fecal Matter tape. Everything had kind of come full circle. All these influences still remained on the lyrics of In Utero, but it's also true they had become more structured, more poetic, and it's fair to say a relationship with a woman who was obsessed with poetry and a perfectionist would have certainly affected his approach to songwriting. And again, that's just a theory, and I know how controversial it is to say, but it's very possible that they would have shared, shared interests being in a relationship together. It's just likely to me. It's also fair to say that Nevermind's songs were full of heartbreak and insecurity, even if the abstract nature of the lyrics didn't make this obviously apparent. Kurt's experiences with Olympian hipsters and a relationship with Bikini Kill's Toby Vale were simply his artistic coming of age. If Nevermind was growing pains, then in Euro would be Kurt and the band at their artistic maturity, and sadly as mature as we would ever hear. Kurt had always wanted to work with the producer Steve Albini. He had been a fan of Albini's band Big Black. He'd also been a fan of Albini's work on the Pixies' Surfer Rosa and the Breeders' album Pod. Albini had a reputation for being a bit of an edgelord at this time, or what we'd call an edgelord now. And it would seem perplexing for an outspoken male feminist like Kurt to want to work with a guy who once fronted a band called Rape Man. In Come As You Are by Michael Azarad, Kurt justified this by basically explaining that he likes to separate the art from the artist. He cites Burroughs among some of the artists who, while being misogynists, do also create great work. Interestingly, this explanation reminds me a lot of the works of feminist writer Camille Paglia, who I mentioned before, whose 1990 book, Sexual Personae, analyzes gender and sexuality through art history and literature. It's dense, controversial, and full of inflammatory statements about gender, about feminism, about the relationship between men and women. The book has even been accused of being anti-feminist. I've read some of it. I certainly don't agree with many of Pallia's conclusions, but it's fair to say 
This book was written from a 1990s post-feminist point of view. And it is very different to the third wave mission statements of the Riot Girl movement. Many contemporary feminists would probably also distance themselves from anything post-feminist. The climate has changed. Kurt and Courtney were both fans of her work. And you just have to remember this was a different point in history. As I've mentioned before, social justice terminology was not mainstream and feminism itself as a word was still pretty controversial to talk about in the 90s. Courtney, who believed Albini was a misogynist, was not a fan and Albini called her a psycho hose beast. Courtney had these words for Steve Albini. The only way Steve Albini would think I was a perfect girlfriend would be if I was from the East Coast, played the cello, had big tits and small hoop earrings, wore black turtlenecks, had all matching luggage and never said a word. All of this is of course relevant when thinking of Nirvana in the context of their time in mainstream Clinton's America, a time where feminist was still a scary word. Open discussions about gender, homophobia and systematic racism weren't common in the mainstream media. By and large, people had a post-feminist point of view. Unless, of course, you belonged to a certain community or were a scholar or an activist in these areas. To be non-heterosexual in the mainstream media could ruin a career. Social justice terminology was not understood or used by the general public around this time. This, of course, does not absolve dodgy actions or bad behaviour, but helps us understand Nirvana and their impact in the context of this time and why writers like Camille Paglia were so popular and so interesting to people. It was kind of feminism kind of that was safe, um, that didn't threaten men. And I'm giving my personal opinion here, but that's, that's what I think about it anyway. This is all worth talking about as we move into In Utero and of course the controversy around the song Rape Me. It's also worth mentioning that Steve Albini has reflected in recent times on his past reputation for what he called himself edgelord shit. Posting on Twitter in October of 2021 saying A lot of things I said and did were from an ignorant position of comfort and privilege and are clearly awful and I regret them. It's nobody's obligation to overlook that and I do feel an obligation to redeem myself. Judging from the thread he posted, this may have been after some old history was dragged up on a music blog and after the subsequent backlash he may have faced. It's true to say that a lot of what was edgy and ironic in the 80s and 90s wouldn't have the same reaction to audiences now. As I explained before, young people now have a more rounded understanding of systematic oppression, structural racism, misogyny, gender and sexuality. And this is probably this is probably from being exposed to different points of view online. This also means there may be a sense of naivety when younger people look back on what came before. Some works just don't age as well. And I'm not talking about Nirvana, I'm talking about other things I've read or consumed in my time. The landscape has changed, it's not just a white man's world and white men are now reminded that they must share their space with other people. Those condemned to the underground in the 1980s and 1990s 
now have a voice in the mainstream, and rightfully so. A space has been created by them and for them. And of course, in saying that, Kurt, who spoke to LGBT publications, who played rock against rape, and who wrote privately about his place in a world full of inequality, was still very much ahead of his time, especially for male rock musician. So that has to be mentioned. Kurt was still very ahead of his time in regards to a lot of his worldview. Rape B ended up being the second single off the album In Utero. Its title and chorus were shocking to some listeners who were confused by such crass use of rape as a metaphor. However, the song was inspired by the treatment Kurt felt he and his family had received by the media. The song is largely inspired by the traumatic events that followed the Vanity Fair article. It seems to be anyway. One lyric goes, My favourite inside source, I'll kiss your open sores. Appreciate your concern, you're going to stink and burn. The lyrics reference the article directly, it seems so anyway, and the theme draws from Kurt's feelings of being poked, prodded and judged by the press. Former US President George Bush had allegedly broken the CD in half when he found it in possession of his daughter Jenna. Kurt stressed that Rape Me was also intended as an anti-rape song, not a song that fetishised such an awful and devastating crime. However, as much as this was made clear, even those who understood its intentions didn't quite like it. Walmart and Kmart had even refused to carry in utero with this particular title listed on the back. In 1993, John Mulvey wrote in Enemy magazine, Cobain's indomitable hiss come growl through gritted teeth that's still potent enough to cause involuntary sweating. It's a great debauched rock voice. But while you can't doubt Cobain's personal political correctness, there's a distinct moral dubiousness about wielding the words rape me. In Utero was recorded at Patchy Durham Studios in Cannon Falls, Minnesota and was produced by Steve Albini. Albini's style, which added a dark, cavernous edge to Kurt's songs, ended up being a perfect fit. Albini's approach to In Utero would defy the style applied to Nevermind. Albini shared Kurt's initial sentiments about its production. He found it too polished and uninteresting. Albini retained the band's raw sound. He also didn't double-track Kurt's vocals, opting to record him in a resonant space instead. In my opinion, In Utero sounds more intimate than Nevermind because of this. Despite what turned out to be quite a dark, serious and intimate album, the sessions weren't short of horseplay. The band made prank phone calls to Eddie Vedder and lit themselves on fire. The sessions also ran a lot smoother than the sessions on Nevermind and the album was recorded in half of the time. According to Michael Azarad's book, the band also got on quite well with their producer, who was complimentary towards each member of the band. Kurt was also surprised, given Albini's reputation, that he found him to be quite a nice guy and easy to work with. However, as mentioned before, Courtney did not feel the same way. 
The approach to the album was in defiance of commercial studio polish. It took cues from bands such as Sonic Youth, whose albums were deliberately laden with noise, distortion and experimentation. They also sound kind of sparse too, especially the early Sonic Youth albums. Although, like Sonic Youth, the album's songs still had catchy hooks. Despite Nevermind being an objectively great album, even if it was polished and commercial, Kurt still kind of resented it. That being said, Nevermind still sounds pretty heavy by today's standards, and it influenced the sounds and techniques of many bands in its wake. In utero was Kurt's fully realised vision. It was Nirvana all grown up. Traumatized 